All right, it's good to be with you all tonight. Um, it's always, it's just wonderful. You know, we meet in the evening, and there are a lot of depressing things about the winter time. But um, coming, walking out, like being, going to church in the dark is one of them, and uh, it's nice to be in the light. So I'm gonna take my mask off. Hey. <laughs> Um, anyway, it's good to be with you all this evening. Um, we are in the season of Eastertide, as you know. If you, you may, if we hadn't said it, you would have noticed by the songs that we've been singing. Um, in the season of Eastertide, this great high point in the Christian year, when in the northern hemisphere at least, we um, learn about the meaning of resurrection with the eruption of life um, out of the ground, where it looked dead for so long, right? Um, the, this, this eruption of life, the budding trees and flowers, it coincides with our celebration of the eruption of Christ from the tomb, you know? We give ourselves to the joyful contemplation in this season of God in Christ, who has conquered death for us. That's what we're doing in this season. And uh, this season, this story, is at the very center of the substance of Christianity, about God's answer to the problem of death that haunts all people and in all places. Uh, death is a thief. It's a thief. It's a thief that, uh, which left unaddressed robs life of all of its meaning. But it has been addressed. And that is the central claim of the Bible and of the church, is that it has been addressed and undone. And because of that, there is joy to be had in this life, like real joy. Not the kind of like shallow happiness that Drew was talking about, but like the real joy that endures through pandemics. Uh, loved ones who die, all these kinds of things. All things, because of the resurrection of Jesus, have in fact been caught up in God's mission to make all things new, and that is because of the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Christianity is about. And that's what the season is about. And so one of the things that we're doing this season to try to inhabit the story and to try to learn from it and make it uh, something that we believe even deeper is we're listening to Mark. We've been listening to Mark for a while now, but we're listening to Mark now in this season. Teach us. Um, to, Mark is going to be showing us, or he has been showing us, he will show us, he'll continue to show us tonight, what resurrection life actually means, what it looks like. And what you, what you find as you walk through the Gospels are the, is that Mark was actually, well, Jesus, Mark is reporting how Jesus was teaching his disciples all the way that resurrection was coming. It was always about resurrection text we're going to look at tonight is something of a famous one if you're familiar with the Bible, um, and it, it contains one of the best and truest expressions of faith that there is, and uh, it will be good to spend some time with it tonight. So looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. And when they came to the disciples, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing with him. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with him? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able and he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. 
And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the, of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And they said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you tonight uh, from all different kinds of places, um, coming into this room uh, in different stages in life, different um, levels of intimacy with you. And I pray that you would meet us all where we are tonight and that you would be at work in us. That you would be at work in us to love you more and to love our neighbor more. And I pray for myself that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight as I preach. And we pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen. One of the uh, routine struggles of Emily and I's life together, and this is actually true of me, this is a true of me just like my whole life, uh, is, is been committing to like a, being able to carve out a consistent and routine time to read the Bible and pray. Anybody else struggle with that? <laughs> um, it's, it's been difficult, but we're in one of the seasons, and it's still not even that consistent, but we're in a season where it's maybe more consistent than it's been for a long time. Um, and part of that is because we finally figured out that if anything like that is going to happen, we've got to get up a lot earlier. Uh, since we have all these kids, and uh, we've been able to do that, and one of the, we've been using the Book of Common Prayer and the lectionary that it has in it, and it's been super helpful. It just tells you what to read. You read it. It's a good chunk. Sometimes it's too long, and you zone out a little bit. But we've been doing it, right? And it's coming. It's the great thing about this kind of reading plan is that it it takes you all around the Bible, reading Old Testament, New Testament Psalms, right? We're getting all kinds of stuff. But one of the things that is actually great about the Bible and has been an encouragement to me, paradoxically, as we've been reading, is that um, if, you don't read, if, you're not, if you haven't been reading widely in the Bible, you can forget that the Bible is like full of a bunch of crazy stuff. And it is raw. It's raw. It's a raw book. And we've been challenged like pretty intensely by some of the things that we've been reading together. There's been a lot of mornings where we're like, I don't know how I feel about that thing we just read. And of course we knew most of these things, but in our complacency we'd forgotten that um, there's some raw stuff in there. There's a bunch of great stuff in there too, right? But there, this raw stuff, the Bible is raw, it is real, it is unvarnished. And if you're trying to like make up a religion, you probably want to like edit those things out. Because they're confusing, right? It's not streamlined. But the scriptures are not trying to hide anything, they're not trying to fake anything. Jesus says and does all kinds of weird things, and the crowds and the disciples are like recorded as saying, what in the world is he talking about? 
Uh, the way, even the way the Gospels present the disciples, they're like foolish in almost every single episode, and they're the ones that are failing even in this text. The apostles of whom we say the, the apostolic faith, that's the faith that we have. These people are presented as foolish. In Paul's letters, most of Paul's letters are to communities who are doing things that make like our community look prudish. Nothing is sugar-coated. There is no hiding, no glossing over of difficulty. And there is especially no glossing over of difficulty with belief. No glossing over of doubt. And this text is about doubt. And about faith. And the question that is being asked by this text is how much faith is enough? How much faith is enough? You see, this whole episode is structured around this kind of back and forth between faith and doubt. Father comes to Jesus. He says, hey, I told your disciples and I, I, told, I asked them to exercise the steam and they couldn't drive it out. Jesus, we're talking about his disciples, says, oh, unbelieving generation, how long do I have to deal with you? And the Father says, if you can do anything, have compassion. Jesus says, anything, everything is possible for one who believes. And that great cry, that great confession of faith that if you've been a Christian for very long, I'm sure you can resonate with, I believe, help my unbelief. So how much faith is enough? I want you to notice that the conflict here is that the disciples have doubts and that they lack the faith to exercise this demon who's been afflicting this child in some awful ways. And in contrast to the disciples, you've got this father who surely has doubts. He actually says, he explicitly expresses that he has doubts, but those doubts are not enough to overcome him in his desperation for Jesus. He doesn't have all the answers, but he's hoping that Jesus can do something. So what are we supposed to do about doubt? What are we supposed to do about it? I mean, the first thing is this. Doubt is a tricky thing. Something almost all of us probably experience. You've got all kinds of feelings about it, probably depending on what kind of community you grew up in, if you grew up in the church, even if you didn't. Some of us in this room grew up in Christian communities where doubt is unspeakable. You're not allowed to say anything about it. And it becomes for everybody who experiences doubt in those kind of communities this dark secret. You've got to keep hidden and push down. You try to ignore it, you keep it locked away and hidden. For some of us in this room, doubt was, um, may have been even uh, suggested to be the reason that bad things are happening to you. I know a man who is actually a pastor now, who when he was like, when he was 10, his dad was dying of cancer. The church was praying for him, he eventually died. And the pastor of that church accused the church of not having enough faith to save his dad. Not having sufficient faith to heal him. And it's hard to think of a deeper wound, I think. I can think of a few, but not many, to inflict on a, on a child in their relationship to God. And then there are some communities, in response to these kinds of abuses, um, they, like, lionize doubt. It's like you're not cool if you don't doubt. You're not cool if you're not like, oh, I don't know, you know. It's like the special, doubters are the special class of people who are the ones who really get it as if doubt is a good thing. But if you've ever been in a season of serious doubt, you know doubt is pain. It's pain. So all these ways are problematic. I mean, I mean, for the first, doubt is real for many people, and to suggest that it, uh, you have to keep it a secret is to suggest that either God or the community you're a part of is too fragile to handle it. And that's like the very best way to get it to fester and to grow and overwhelm you. I've seen that happen time again. I think it's one of Satan's best deceits, that doubt is unallowable. 
And if, you know, in the second scenario, like, if, if doubt is the reason for your, um, for, for God not kind of blessing you or whatever, that one's problematic because Jesus would have had to have been lacking in sufficient faith as well, because Jesus, Jesus prayed for things and did not have those things given to him. You know this. So never let anyone suggest to you that that is why your prayer has gone unanswered. And then lastly, if you've ever been in a true season of doubt, you'll know, as I said, that it's pain. It feels like being torn apart. There's a desperation. In the guttural, you know, there's a guttural kind of pain in the Father's voice, this mix of vulnerability and hope and fear and, and, and hopelessness and despair that reveals the true experience of doubt that one theologian has called, it's, it's like being impaled on the contradiction of your doubt and your belief. So how much faith do you have to have for Jesus to save you? How much do you have to have for Jesus to heal you? What we learn from this father is, is in, in his encounter with Jesus here is that the basic posture of a Christian is expressed in this old ancient phrase that um, Augustine said it, of course he did, because he said all this stuff, but it's this old ancient phrase that's called faith, Christian faith is faith seeking understanding faith seeking understanding and he, he shows us the basic posture of Christian faith this recognition the father recognizes that he is in a desperate situation he recognizes that he doesn't understand how it all works and he recognizes that if there is any hope it's in Jesus Christ and that is enough that's faith that's faith-seeking understanding. Like, this is the dynamic. We come to Jesus not knowing everything because we can't know everything. Right? I can't even see out of the building, right? Our field of vision in this life is limited, both physically and spiritually, emotionally. But we know at least that we need him. In, the, in his death and his resurrection, he saved us from the guilt of our own sin and the despair that's introduced into our lives and the rest of this world um, by, our, by our own <laughs> guaranteed eventual demise. Like, everybody in this room is going to die. I feel like that's offensive for me to even suggest to you, but it's true. And so as we live our life with God and we encounter confusion and tragedy and frustration and doubt, we bring those things to God in humility as what we are, which is creatures, limited, finite beings. who cannot and, and do not know why a virus would be allowed to ravage the world for over a year now, who, who cannot and do not know why the, the greedy and the violence seem to always win. We bring our concerns to God as creatures who cannot and do not know why that baby's heart stopped beating before he took his first breath. And as people who uh, cannot and do not know why, Jesus is so slow in coming again to make all things new. We come with faith, seeking understanding, and we pray this way. This is, I think, what Jesus means in verses 28 and 29. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the prayer. We pray as those with faith, seeking understanding. The disciples did not have enough faith to do this thing that they were trying to do, but that doesn't mean that they were no longer disciples. 
We pray as those with doubt seeking to have them resolved. And we can do this because of what we learn from this Father in the text. Is it's the object of your faith, however laced your faith is with doubt, that counts. It's the object, which is to say it's Jesus. You are safe enough with a little bit of faith in the loving embrace of Jesus to be honest with him and humble enough to learn from him. That's how much faith you need. I believe help my unbelief. Now, what is he teaching? This text is about doubt, but it's also about Jesus' teaching. And what I want you to see is that Jesus is showing the disciples what he has come to do in this encounter with the boy and the demon. He's coming to exercise not just the boy, but all mankind. Now, remember, in, in Mark's telling of Jesus' life, if you, if you look at the previous verses, this comes right after the transfiguration. It's a big word, but it's this, it's this episode, this insane episode where Moses and Elijah, who've been dead for a real long time, show up on the top of a hill with Jesus, and he starts to glow. That's the transfiguration. And it also comes in the middle of several repeated instances where Jesus is telling his disciples, like, hey, I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back from the dead, but I'm going to die. And they're repeatedly like... He can't mean, like, really die, you know? So I wonder what he means. Look at, we don't have it in front of you, but verse 9 of chapter 9, this is just before our text, talking about the disciples, Peter, James, and John, coming down off the mountain after Jesus has been transfigured before them, and, and it says this. They were coming down the mountain, and Jesus charged them not to tell, or to tell no one of what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. What I want you to understand is that, of course, this text is a demonstration of Jesus' power over the the, the spiritual forces of darkness, right? What the New Testament calls the powers and principalities. Of course it is that. But this act of Jesus is also a demonstration to these disciples who do not understand what he is about to go do. It's a demonstration of the necessity of resurrection, of the cleansing. This rising from the dead that they, that they do not understand, I want you to see that he is teaching them of what it is. And what you should see is that this boy is like all of humanity. Blind to the truth. Unable to speak words of faith on his own. Unable to free himself from self-destruction. See, Satan seeks to destroy us all in the floodwaters of unbelief and the fire of judgment. Humanity as a whole is sick. It is possessed in need of exorcism. You know this, if you're honest. And in this healing, Jesus shows us what he is about to do. Jesus' death is the exorcism of human nature. In one man, all mankind dies, and so in another man, all mankind is made alive. You see, the crowd, the, the cries of the crowd shouting, crucify him. The mocking voices of the Roman guards, the whips against his back, the crown of thorns, him being hung up on the wood of the cross. All of these things are the great convulsions of mankind. The convulsions of humanity possessed and being cleansed. Just like the boy. And Jesus, being human himself, would appear to be defeated much more truly than the boy. He would actually be dead. 
that he would rise. So listen, I, I want you to see that, that belief is a gift received in a thing that is lived and learned. The scriptures are unflinchingly honest about the reality of doubt and all the different reasons that it comes to us. And all of us in this room have different reasons. But this is the basic posture of faith, seeking understanding, and Jesus will meet you in it and teach you in unpredictable ways what it means that once in ancient Israel, love walked among us. So I want you to be confident, even if you may doubt Precisely because of what is prefigured in this text, the healing of all mankind, in the healing of this boy. Because Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again, and he will come again for you. And so we can say together with a man named Frederick Buechner, every morning you should wake up in your bed and ask yourself, can I believe it all again today? No better still, don't ask that question until after you've read the New York Times, till after you've studied that daily record of the world's brokenness and corruption, which should always stand side by side with your Bible. Then, ask yourself if you can believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ again for that particular day, and then if some morning the answer happens to really be yes, it should be a yes that's choked with confession and tears and great laughter. Brothers and sisters, let us laugh again together today because Christ who died lives again. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this text, this record of the work of your son, of his ministry to us. Um, thank you for the ways that it addresses our doubt and what it, mean, what it feels like to be a human being, what it feels like to be someone whose faith is weak, God, I pray that you would meet us in the weakness of our faith and that you would build us up. That we would not be kept from you by, by shame and anxiety over our doubts, but that we would have those doubts resolved. And God, I pray in all of this that our faith would be deeper and that our love for you and for this world would be stronger. And I pray for all these things in Jesus' name.